اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته welcome to the safina society podcast uh, we are doing our second virtual episode and today we are joined by Sheikh Salman Yunus um so I, I'm not going to go through the entire bio here but I will say that uh Salman Yunus has uh, Sheikh Salman has a number of teachers including uh Sheikh Faraz Rabani, Sheikh Salah Abdul Hajj, Sheikh Ashraf Munib, Sheikh Ahmed Hassanat. There's a long list here, so I won't go through all of them. Um, but mashallah, he is very learned and he's joined us all the way from the UK, right? Is that? Yep. Um, uh, and he's joined us here and will be in this discussion with us uh, along with uh, Nazmul Saad and Dr. Shadi uh, once again. So how's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah, very good. And speaking on the introduction of uh, Sheikh Salman is most important. He's very active. And uh, I like active people and people who are active. Uh, that's really one of our uh, main things that we were taught in Dawah is that you have to be active. You can't just uh, learn something and sit on it and not be willing to go out there and try to say something and, and you know, teach it uh, and worry about, a, a, you know, pushback or anything. So he's really active. It's one of the most important qualities that a person has to have. MashaAllah. So uh, first thing I actually wanted to ask, I saw, uh, you know, Sheikh Salman, you're over in the UK. Uh, can you describe the situation in the UK in terms of, you know, the, the Muslims and, and how they're dealing with uh, this pandemic going on now before we kind of cut over to the United States stuff? Yeah, I mean, the situation is, um, obviously, we know it's going to get worse um, in, in the coming weeks. Uh, alhamdulillah, there were a lot of there were a lot of Muslim scholars. There were a lot of Muslim community leaders who were sort of ahead of the game, and so even when the government came out with their initial guidance, um, there were a lot of Muslim leaders uh, who were sort of pushing back and saying, "Hey guys, this is not you know forget about whatever economic interests you have and uh, you know whatever politics you want to play. This is a serious matter. We got we we have to do something more uh, uh, more proactive to counteract." the the effects of this coronavirus uh and muslims knew a lot of muslims knew you know like we were discussing before we started this podcast that you know the muslims are going to take a big hit because of how their their families are structured uh because of um how muslims engage with the community in terms of juma and uh salah in the masjid and classes in the makatib and the madaris uh and so they understood that you know the muslim community in particular was going to be um uh, negatively uh, impacted by this coronavirus, perhaps worse than uh, other communities, uh, and so it's been difficult. Like uh, you know, we've had plenty of we have we've had a number of Muslim doctors pass away. Uh, Sidi Fuad Nahdi uh, passed away from the coronavirus as well. Um, his son confirmed that, and you know, he was one of the he was he was one of, one of the individuals who sort of introduced traditional Islam, traditional ulama uh, into the UK. Um, and today we saw a 13-year-old uh, Muslim kid named Ismail. He passed away, no health conditions. Uh, you know, single mom. Um, her husband passed away from cancer like a few years ago. So it's really tough on the community, you know, over here. Uh, and, you know, uh, yeah, we can just, you know, at, at these moments, there's nothing we can do except uh, support each other as a community and turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and ask him to have uh, mercy on on whatever we're dealing with right now. Uh, I want to bring up uh, what you said about Fuad Nahdi. 
So I was around, when I was around in England, he was really active. So I got there around 2002. He hadn't started Radical Middle Way yet. Uh, it was, Q News was still a thing. He, it was he, I believe, who was responsible for bringing in a lot of, a lot of uh, Mashaikh. He was, I think, one of the people who used to bring Sheikh Hamza all the time. He brought in the Habaib. He brought in a lot of different Habaib, not just Habib Omar, Habib Ali, but he brought in a lot of other Habaib that are, I guess you could say, lesser known. So Fuad Nahdi is a Tanzanian, a Tanzanian and uh, he's one of, he's basically from Yemeni lineage. I think he's from Ba'alawi lineage, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Allah Adam, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that that's what he is. So he's originally Yemeni, East African. Uh, maybe, uh, I think he's also maybe have some Indian in his background. I don't know. Uh, that's not important. What's important is that he comes from that background of the Habib and he used to bring them over. And the scene from 2002 that I, when I got there was on fire. There were so many Mashaikh. There was Sheikh Babikr, a Sudani. There was Sheikh uh, Muhammad Bashraib. Right. Sheikh Muhammad Bashraib is a very, very quiet. You never hear him really say much. He's not a speaker. He doesn't really teach fiqh, but he is a real spiritual master. And people used to go to, he, has, he used to have a majlis. They used to recite some Quran, al-Ratib al-Haddad, some qasidas, and he would give a short explanation, very short brief from Riyadh al-Salihin. But I'm telling and then you would eat, we would eat. We would eat a lot of food, right? Uh, really good home-cooked food. And all this would take place in a tiny house, wherever the gathering was. Every Thursday, it was a different location. It was like maybe 10 houses. It would rotate. And we'd pack in like sardines. But I'm telling you, we would all leave and our state was different. You know, our, our, and that's a sign of a real shift is that you leave and your state is different. Your condition, you feel uh, you know, renewed. You feel clean. And he was really the anchor. And then Fuad... Nahdi would do uh, the type of social stuff, the conferences at friend's house, if you remember on East, uh, what is it called? Houston? I can't remember, believe it or not. Uh, Houston, right? Friend's house on Houston. Um, he would rent that place out. It was, it was really exciting. So he, cre- he, caught, he brought a lot of excitement. It's sad to say that when I went back in 2017, I believe, the brothers in London told me everything is stopped. There's no, there are no more gatherings, Mashaikh. There is no action in London. Everything is up north now. Uh, Oxford became sort of a new center. I never got into that scene. But uh, it was sad that that happened, right? And I attribute it to a little bit of sort of lax, laxity. You know, the Sufi circles tend to have a degree of laxity uh, on issues like mingling and music and things. And, and clothes and stuff like that. They, I actually, I don't know, Sheikh Salman, maybe you can, uh, uh, you know, give me your take, but the Achilles heel of Sufi circles in the West tends to be music, clothes, and I would say gender relations, right? The more Qasida, Dhikr, Mawlid you get into, the, the more loose you get on those subjects. And what happens is that you know, it corrupts the, the um, compass of the heart, right? And I don't mean to associate this with, obviously, Fuad Nahdi or anyone, but I'm just saying that that's probably my, one of the things I observed. It started getting more, you know, towards that direction. 
And then give it five, seven years, everyone was into identity, politics, third spaces, the arts, right? And then all of a sudden, there's like zero fiqh, zero, zero classes. Even the, the, the victory gatherings had decreased, right? The interest in nuts and bolts dean had sort of withered away. So I know I took it on a little bit of a tangent. Sad, do you want to say something? He didn't raise his hand. Oh, okay. His oh, screen oh, came up. Sad, oh, do you want to talk? All right. No, I'm good. All right. Sheikh, all right. <laughs> Sheikh Salman, what do you think of what I said? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think traditional Islam is sort of between a rock and a hard place in the sense that we're obviously, you know, this laxity where I think we're, we're, people are trying to respond to something that they see in the community. That this is, they feel that this is what attracts specific individuals to our spaces, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's a reflection of broader culture and we need to meet people where they are or, you know, whatever it might be. And so we have this problem of sometimes perhaps taking it too far and forgetting, you know, our, where we're supposed to be anchored. Yeah. But at the same time, when we do try to, when we do the serious stuff, you know, when we do the alum, when we do the fiqh, when we do the aqidah, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, you know, that was a thing of like 20 years ago. Yeah. Subhanallah. Cool stuff. We want to. Yeah. Uh, and so like, even right now, um, you know, I was teaching, I started this course in Quduri, in Fiqh, right? I, I gave my first lesson, like, uh, on Monday, mm. where we're going, we're going to read, read the whole, try to read the whole text. And I remember someone messaged me, and he was like, you know, Sheikh, you should have been a little bit more, you know, smiley and cool and stuff like that. <laughs> and I said, I don't do that when I'm teaching Fiqh. Yeah. Like that. yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm teaching to, I'm trying to teach the students who want to study this this traditional text that Muslims have studied for thousands of years, yeah, h- hundreds of years. You know, it's a mubarak text. It's studied in madaris all over the world. I don't want to make it into something like hip and cool for you. You know, yeah. There's a time and place for everything. You don't go to your chemistry teacher and say like, "Can you spice it up?" Yeah, right. well, I think that that we need to strike a balance between sort of appealing to a sort of broad base of people who might not be too religious, but at the same time recognizing that there's a very serious uh, and even strict component to Islam mm-hmm. that we should continue upholding and continue, continue, continue to preach as an ideal. Honestly, the, the one who had that the best was Sheikh Hamza at Zaytuna. Uh, back in, I would say, when it was Zaytuna Institute, yeah. he really had a perfect balance, in my opinion, that nothing went on there that you could say was a, a foul, right, uh, in Sharia, but at this, or like outside the bounds of anything. And at the same time, it was, he was very relevant, very appealing, balanced in that the, the way, the policies that he chose on the issues that might turn people on or off, right? Those policies, and I call them policies more than rulings, because you have a number of rulings that you could choose from, potentially on certain masa'il, on certain issues. And you make a policy that this is the ruling we're going to choose because it, 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 it's both correct, it's got backing, and it, it works for our people. Right. So uh, those policies that he had were um, perfect. They didn't know one was turned off by it and it didn't uh, discourage anyone who wanted to uphold this dean. So, you know, that to me was a great model. Yeah. I I mean, this principle is it holds true in in every science. Right. Obviously, when you're teaching, you know, 
preschoolers and kindergarten kids, you know, their ABCs is different than teaching, you know, uh, Shakespeare to a college classroom, right? Yeah. It's still teaching the science of English, but you're teaching two different groups of people and two different types of knowledge there, right? And I think yeah. people know this, right? I mean, it's, it's not just uh, that, that Muslims need to know this. Everybody knows this, right? When you're teaching uh, chemistry in high school versus teaching organic chemistry in, in college, it's going to be, you know, two different things yeah. and the seriousness to it that's, that's going to be there, obviously, right? Um, so I, I think... Uh, like, like Sheikh Salman was saying, obviously teaching Uduri to serious students is very different than teaching the, the fiqh of Udu to, to, to like, you know, first graders or second graders, right? Obviously, yeah. you could, there's a playful nature to that. Um, but uh, like, like you were saying, I, I don't want to go too tangential here um, because I, I, the, the topic and the questions that I had for you guys is, is a number of things that are related sort of to living in this pandemic age. And, and I did want to get into the primary, secondary, and tertiary effects of that. But before we actually get into that type of stuff, there's one main big question that I'd like to, to address. And it's since Ramadan is upcoming, and at least in New Jersey, and we can speak about our area, we know that the beginning of Ramadan is, is likely to be at home. And if you ask me, I'm going to say that all of Ramadan is going to be at home, but officially, uh, we know that you know we can't gather um, by the state. So that's that's one thing I wanted to ask about: is why are the doors of the masajid and 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 the haram closed? You know, is this a test or a punishment? What's going on? And since we have Dr. Shadi and Sheikh Salman here, perhaps you can comment on these things. Okay. Well, the first thing I have to say is that for sure, that in the state of New Jersey, there's not going to be any gatherings. Because we already know that uh, it's going to be till April 30th. And actually, no, it's the United States. That's federal. Yeah, I think right? it's federal. It's federal. So um, across the board, the first six days of Ramadan or around six, seven days of Ramadan will be at home. And as to your question about, and by the way, if you think about it, in the Prophet's time, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Sahaba prayed their tarawih at home, right? Yeah. There wasn't, there didn't have this concept that we had now obviously it, it happened in the time of the sahaba but uh that's interesting because we would have that type of ramadan where you're home and you break your fast and you stay home the sahaba may have you know went to um you know uh, uh to the masjid to to make to their salah but uh they there wasn't jama'ah okay there wasn't anything that was similar to ours there definitely weren't these walimas uh, what you guys call in uh, what you call in uh, Urdu Davids, right? <laughs> right. Uh, they didn't have these dinner parties, Ozumas, Davids, Valimas, whatever you want to call it in whatever language, but they didn't have any of this. And um, subhanAllah, uh, it's going to be an interesting Ramadan. Now, to your question about the Masajid, I would have host Navan with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say that this always hap- has always been plagues, right? Just it doesn't happen to, except like once a generation, it's always been plagues. The haram has been closed before. I would have husnadhan with Allah Ta'ala instead of saying, oh, the ummah, this, that, and the other. Yeah, the ummah, we could always improve, right? But why do we have to look at the action that's happening in the world as a negative, right? That's to me, it's type of su'adhan billah Ta'ala. Look at it as a the cup half full and there's a potential for positive. Now, number one, Forgiveness of sins. Number two, there will be martyrs taken from us. Number three, 
no one's wasting nonsense time on entertainment, sports, blah, 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 right? Uh, try to look, I look at it, I look at it like that. You know, why look at it with a suit of fun and a speculation when I could look at it as the cup half full? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things is, so just because something has good sides of it, right, doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's not still uh, something that's sent from from Allah. This is where the the question comes in: is if I if you were to ask me, for example, an economic downfall of corporations and the elite in America, most people will say, you know, maybe this is something that we need. We need a hard reset. Obviously, a another great depression is going to lead a lot of people to lose a lot of things, including lives, perhaps more than the the virus. Right. So, but there's a good to it. Right. Can I say, can I say something about that? That's not the perspective of a Muslim. That's the perspective of someone jealous of of their wealth. Right. Because not everyone wealthy is a corrupt, you know, uh, greedy, destroys his workers, unfair, it's just one of these myths, to be honest with you, myths. Of course, some of it's true. Likewise, some poor people are lazy, yes. right? And some victims ask to get victimized, but we don't say that stuff, right? Because it's, not, it's, a, it's a generalization, right? It is a generalization, but it is a fact that some victims asked, they, they got what they asked for. Is it all? No. But is it some? I'm sure you can find some. Are there poor people who are lazy? Some. Is it true for everyone? Of course not, right? So we don't say those things because they're generalizations. So why do we get and generalize on the rich, right? And the wealthy and these things. Why would you generalize on those things? Not all of them are these corrupt people. Right? Some of them are just totally honestly wealthy. And why would you want them enjoy their downfall, right? Just because you don't know how it feels to be rich. That's why, right? So you enjoy the, likewise, oh, we enjoy the Chinese, everyone's bashing the Chinese because they tortured the Muslims, blah, blah, blah. Wait a second. What if you had a Chinese convert wife? What position is she in right now? Very awkward position, right? Very awkward to see, oh my God, all of a sudden the Muslims are taking this free reign on Chinese, right? Uh, and making fun of them. And yeah, they tortured the Muslims, so let's free reign on the Chinese, right? But it's all fine as long as it doesn't touch you and it's not in your sphere of reference whether it's Chinese, rich people, whatever. So just to give a thing on that perspective of the fall of some of these uh, corporations. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll get into more of the economic fall a little bit later. But I had a thought last night, and, and I think I posted it to you guys yesterday, is I know that we should always be hopeful for the ummah, right? And, and, and for Muslims in general, and for the world too, right? But the question that I had is, how do we know what is good for us as an ummah, as the world? And how can you, in good faith, right? You might want to make dua to Allah and say, hey, Allah subhanahu, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I want this pandemic removed. I want this, this, whatever this might be, removed from the world. And how do we know and how can we ask Allah for this dua when you don't know what is good for us? Well, I have an answer to that, but I want to hear Sheikh Salman's first. Uh, I, I actually wanted to go back to something that you mentioned a little earlier. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Yeah, sure. Which is, you know, I agree with Dr. Shadi. I think we should, we should be, we should look at this from a more positive angle. 
um, like, first of all, I don't even see the, what's the use of discussing whether it's an, it's a punishment for the Chinese or not. It's like, it's a completely useless discussion. 100%. You, yeah. You, you as an individual are being, you know, whether you see it as an affliction or whatever, you as an individual are being afflicted with this, right? You have, you have a personal responsibility and a personal obligation to respond to it in a way that our religion has prescribed. I mean, there are, there are dozens and dozens of uh, hadith and Quranic verses on believers being afflicted with calamity, nations being afflicted with calamity, right? Uh, you know, uh, the Prophet alayhi said that uh, uh, whoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intends good for, you know, yusib minhu, he, he afflicts him with a trial. You know, like, so we can't, we can't simply frame um, uh, trials in a, in a negative light from a spiritual and religious perspective. You know, they, they, they serve a higher function. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, Sheikh Nuh mentioned in his audio when, he, when this pandemic had started, he said that this is basically Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's jalal has manifested mm-hmm. on the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And the Sufi does not benefit. The Sufi m- maximizes his benefit in periods of jalal, mm-hmm. right? Because he recognizes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending him a sign and telling him that, you know, you, you either need to change, you need to increase your worship, you need to turn back to me, you need to, you know, recognize your place in the world. And I think that's what we should be uh, um, telling believers rather than saying, well, this is an adha for the Chinese, this is a calamity for so-and-so, this is a, you know, fulan for someone else. Because I think this is just, that's just a waste of time. Uh, to, to Speculation. Be yeah. Oh, it's just, it's and has no benefit. This is something that, I'm not sure if I'll say that, you know, it's, it's not of total benefit. Here's, here's my thought on it, because I think it's, he, he, the, uh, speaking as a lay person, I think a lot of Muslims across the world, we have gone through decades and almost a decade now, if you take nine, if you start from nine 11, Muslims around the world have gone through difficult. Right. I mean, is that difficulty, you know, relative to, to the Sahaba in the previous times? Is it is it much? Maybe not. I don't know. But speaking from the angle that we're in, right, a common layperson, what do they say? What do they think? They think that we've gone through a lot of difficulty. There's been a lot of ups and downs for the Muslim Ummah. They see general hedonism, general materialism, a general lack of, you know, uh, belief in God all throughout the world. And this thing these sort of the decadence of society has come about from a lot of Western sources, a lot of uh, uh, secular sources. And and I think what normal laypersons see, especially if you talk to like, for example, Desi aunties, what do they tell you? Tell you that, Hey, Allah has sent this azab to, to remind us of, you know, what, what we have been doing and we're being punished for the last X number of years. Look at what has happened in, in the world. And I, I would say that that's natural. For someone to, for for a common layperson to do that, they're not looking at all these nuances of, you know, oh, you know, how do we understand Allah's punishment and 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 tests and azab? They just think that, hey, you know, maybe Allah is giving us, you know, maybe this is the comeuppance of the world. You know, we we have been suffering for a long time. Maybe Allah is coming. Wouldn't you say that this is a natural response for people? And I think it's it's. I think it's unfair to say, hey, we shouldn't even talk about this or discuss this and, and say, hey, just ignore this. Let's not, there's no benefit in discussing punishment. When yeah. I would actually argue that there is some benefit, right? I think it's natural with in passing. 
like yes. assaults, right? In passing, right? Like, I think we say that all the time, right? Amen, subhanAllah, we deserve this, right? We, we are all this zina that's going on, all this riba that's going on, but in passing and that's it. And, and, and not nothing more than that, right? Because if it gets anything more than that, you're like, it, it's just, it's not its place. It's right? consuming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to, Sheikh Salman already touched on this, but I wanted to look at this from a perspective of theodicy. Uh, because Here so we one, go. <laughs> that's so uh, mm-hmm. one. There was this one Bengali auntie that um, was that's your source. My, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a all lot of this time. All this time, it's his great grandma, all right? While she's stirring the chai, she's telling him, "Beta." <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom in the. Okay, let's uh, hear it. So, so, um, uh, so she was talking to my aunt and basically she's like, yeah, this is like adab on, on the world and on all the, all the Chinese. And so my aunt replies, you know, she's a simple woman, but she, she replies, well, if it's a punishment, like, why isn't it like just, um, killing all the political leaders and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so yeah. and then the Santi didn't know what to say. So, yeah, and, and why is Israel like getting scot-free? I think they've been hurt the least. Well, it's it's because of the dream, remember? Like there was a dream going around. Yeah, I was saying. Okay, oh no, I'm not even gonna go. <laughs> I'm not even gonna go into that. Yeah. Uh, Sheikh Salman had something to say. Yeah, I mean, listen, people who don't respond to this in a way that is uh, that 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 allows them to turn to God, it's a punishment for them. Yeah, people who do, it's not a punishment for them. I mean, it's as, it's as simple as that. Yeah, it's for, on the individual level, it's as simple as that. And there's this really interesting, like. Um, Shuraih, who's a famous who was a famous qadi and uh, during the time of Ibn Ali, uh, he he has this he has a saying that was related by um, Imam Zahabi and others, uh, and he mentioned that when I'm afflicted by any calamity, I praise Allah Subhanahu wa Taala four times, right? One, I praise Him that the calamity was not as bad as it could have been, or as mm. bad as the calamities could have been worse. Two, yeah, it could have been worse. I, I praise him for him providing me patience to bear with it. Then I praise him because he allows me to recall hope for the reward that I will get for going through this calamity. And then finally, I praise him because he did not make that calamity a calamity in my religion. Like it did mm. not affect my like iman or my faith. And so, you know, this is how, I mean, this is how the early Muslims looked at these things. Um, and I think that while, like, like you said, it's very natural for us to see what's happening in China or, you know, other places around the world and say that, you know, we're getting what we deserve. But after that, the believer says, I'm getting what I deserve. How can I change things now? That's the key. Yeah. That's, that's, the key. That's, and that's what we should be uh, sort of focusing on at this point. Nazma, you want to finish your thought on? Yeah. Yeah. And, and basically, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Right. Um, like if we if we become sort of a slave to cause and effect and just sort of look at the world without the the eyes of revelation, then I mean it, it really does look like that the that this is an indiscriminate sort of thing, right? The good and the bad are all mixed together, and everybody's getting the virus, and you know everybody's just dying, you know, um, and people are just getting killed. So, but if we use the the eyes of revelation, then you know we come to a different understanding, which is why like. Um, the world can seem chaotic without revelation. I mean, this is why you need revelation, right? Um, like, for example, if you saw somebody, like if you saw a Muslim who's having a very difficult death, now you'd think like, you know, maybe this guy is a very big sinner and 
he's a hypocrite, so Allah's punishing him uh, in his death, right? I mean, that's what most of us would think. But there's actually a hadith. Um, so Sheikh, uh, Sheikh uh, Maulana Tanwi, he wrote a book called, I think, The Desire for the Akhirah. So he has a hadith in there which uh, says that a mu'min, if he has a difficult death, then it's a means of purification of his sins. And if a non-Muslim, he has a very easy death, it's a, it's a recompense because of some of the good deeds that he did. So, I mean, uh, you know, our deen in general is very cautious about sort of making a blanket statement about uh, like the, the result of whatever it is that you're going through, right? And it, uh, it, recalls, it calls for in- introspection and um, like, I, like what Muin and Sheikh Salman said, like, what can I do in this, uh, in this moment? Yeah, uh, well, one of the one of the other things too that I want to bring up is uh, you said how do we when we how do we make du'a for something that uh, we don't know if it's good or bad for us, right? Well, the answer to it is you 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 your du'a should be based upon uh, obedience, right? Uh, it's based upon obedience, right? And what do we we obey the Prophet peace be upon him when he has told us this is what you make du'a for. If you get sick, you make du'a for shifa. So let's say hypothetically, yeah, something could be good for you, right? It could be good for you that this, that, or the other bad thing happens, but that's not the basis of your, your action. You base action on what is the sunnah to do in this situation. The sunnah to do in this, in this situation is uh, seeking forgiveness. The sunnah in this situation is, you know, uh, things like that is seek, uh, trying to get a, a cure for, um, for your shifa or being cautious, right? Because you asked a very good question. How do we know if something's good for you, right? Uh, if like bad things are good for us, right? So if a bad thing happens, how do we know that in good faith that we should ask to, to end it? What if it's good for us? Well, the, the answer to it is that you make dua because that's the sunnah. The sunnah is to seek an end to it even if you think it's good for you. You know, one of the most fascinating things that I've read about recently in regards to uh, plagues and uh, how it affects Muslims mm. is that there's actually a very lengthy record of uh, the Prophet والسلام, appearing in dreams to people during times of plague, like mm. the right people and telling them that recite such and such or you know, turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through this dua. Mm. And even during this plague, uh, uh, someone saw the Prophet in a, in a, in a dream, uh, salam, and uh, the Prophet told him, go tell Mufti Taqi Uthmani that they sh- the people should recite, you know, um, uh, I can't exactly remember what it was on the top of my head. I think it was like uh, the Quls three times and Fatiha three times and Hasbunallah wa Ni'mal Wakil 313 times, something like that. But Mufti Taqi actually made an announcement on, you know, public, you know, Pakistani state television that, you know, the prophet came to a, uh, uh, you know, someone I know who's very righteous in a dream and told him to inform me that we should, this is what we should recite. Mm. And so I was actually going to, I was going to do a podcast like next week uh, that was going to be entitled, you know, the aid of the prophet during times of plague. Mm. Uh, uh, and um, I just thought it was, it, was, it was really beautiful that the Prophet والسلام, is still coming to us and trying to aid and comfort his ummah, you know, during, during these times um, uh, and, and trying to redirect them to, to see what the purpose of these, of these events are. 
which is turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. SubhanAllah. That's a be- How many did you collect? I collected about five of them uh, so far. Sure. All, all uh, th- like through the ages? Yeah. Oh, wow. What, how far back? Um, I mean, I haven't done an exhaustive uh, search, but I, you know, there are a few manuals, uh, not, not a few, there's about like 30 manuals that have been authored in our classical tradition on mm. the plague and how you respond to the plague. Mm. Hajar has, has one, which is quite lengthy, like 300 pages. Uh, and in it, he mentions a few incidences. He actually lists like, you know, a hundred different plagues that occurred throughout Muslim lands. Wow. Some were local, some were, you know, more widespread. Uh, but while he's listing them, he mentions some of these uh, events mm. that happen to people. And also, and also no one event is all good for everyone or all bad. It's based on the individual. If you think about it, the coming of the Prophet we know that universally it's good. I mean, what was the result of for uh, Abu Jahl though, and Abu Lahab, right? So it's all, whatever good, bad, or otherwise comes to a person, the question is how you react to it. If you react to it by drawing good to Allah, uh, towards Allah Ta'ala, and getting closer to the Sunnah, then it was good for you, right? If you react to it because it was uh, by going further away, then for, then you have made it bad for yourself. So it's not even whether it's good or bad, right? Certain things, of course, objectively, they're good, right? The coming of an Nabi is obviously going to be good. There's no question about that. But all other events, it's not whether it's good or bad. It's whether you benefit from it or you, you know, opposite of that from it, right? right. Harm yourself by it. Certainly. And there's a lot of people that um, are currently suffering that may see a relief from the events that are happening. And there are a lot of people that are in relative ease that will see hardships as a result of this. And so that is going to depend upon what type of situation you're already in yeah, and how you respond to it. I mean, think about the, uh, how the Bani Israel responded to Sayyidina Isa, right, was bad. However, there were very few... Hawariyin, uh, disciples that stuck with Sayyidina Isa. Now, just for the fact that they were so few and the rejectors were so many, their reward increases, right? So the rejection for them, they benefited from it, even though it was a bad thing, but they benefited from it. You know, so that's really the question that we should go back to asking is, are we benefiting from this or are we not? Whether it's good, bad, or otherwise, we're going to have to make that decision in either way. And I think that type of, an example I was going to use is if you take even at the time of the Prophet there were people who didn't initially believe in the Prophet and then much later they did, right? Especially let's take someone at the time of Fatih Makkah, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they convert to Islam at that time. Now imagine living through that time period where they're in Makkah and they see all of these things happening, this person comes, says that he's a Nabi, uh, and he says all these things, there's these battles happening. Imagine just being a, a, a standard citizen at the time, you know, the Prophet came in Mecca, and you, and you weren't really involved in all of these affairs, and you just kind of thought that this was someone, I'm not going to, I'm not going to choose to not believe them, but I'm not going to choose to believe them either. And then yeah. maybe, and then maybe later, you know, once Fatima Mecca happened, this, per, these, this, this person believes in the Prophet yeah, and and gives his, his or her shahada. Imagine the state of this person, you know, during during this transitionary period. 
They, yeah. they think their world is collapsing. That's true. Right. That's true. And, but they don't know that what, that what's coming is good for them. In the yeah. meanwhile, they, they're just, they just think the world is collapsing around yeah. them. Um, so now the, the next thing I'd like to get to is to talk about some of the primary, secondary, and tertiary effects of living in this sort of pandemic age. Now, the, the first thing that I was thinking about is I was talking to Mufti Niyaz earlier, and we were just discussing Ramadan at the masjid. Mm. And one thought that occurred to me is, you know, even the Sahaba, when they were going through the battles of Badr and Uhud and all these, they had Ramadan. Right? Yeah. And that wasn't the primary concern. They had larger concerns that were that far eclipsed how are they are going to fast in Ramadan or you know do Taravi or whatever it is. Well, technically, the fasting came in the after the battle correct. of Badr and Uhud. Correct, correct, correct. Um, but it's it's interesting to think about. And and one thing that I wanted to talk about is I know a lot of Muslim communities and a lot of Muslims are are focused on you know, what are we going to do in Ramadan? How are we going to make this Ramadan productive? That's great. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. It's great. But I think there are going to be far larger concerns to be, to be worried about that we need to prepare for as an ummah as well. Um, th- for example, there's a lot of people who just because they can't get to the masjid, right, are not going to be able to get the spiritual nourishment that they do, right? There's, I, I got a text which I thought was very strange is they were like, Oh, I'm not sure if we should fast in order to keep our immune system healthy. <laughs> wow. That's, no, I mean, push, it's, that's it's, pushing it's, it a little bit. It's, 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 uh, if you're sick, funny. you don't have to fast at all, but you don't, you don't fast to, you know, uh, before you're sick. I mean, initially th- that's, I mean, I responded with a, you know, something probably that, wasn't doesn't fasting thing. increase your immune system. I'm glad you said that, Nazmo, because I was about to say, was that Naz who said that? Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, let's say this person does believe this. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about my well-being or my parents' well-being and, and people around me. I don't want to weaken my immune system in Ramadan. And look, we can, we can just say, oh, this is a person who's weak in their iman. You could say all these things, but let's be real. There are a lot of people like that in Ramadan who – you know, they come to the masjid and they're fortified by the fact that there's all these people that are fasting with them and, and they're like, hey, I'm going to fast too. I can do this. Right? You're 100% right. There's no group support anymore. Yeah, and it's, and, and it's difficult to be like, there's a lot of people that come to Taravi who do not regularly come for prayers and they, they're not very practicing at all, but they just kind of come for Taravi. It's just You're 100% right. It's just but, a routine. I mean, let me tell you, this is a point for I have to tell you now is that most people I would say, yeah we're we're going to do some kind of uh, for what it's worth we're going to be having a zoom agenda i think most masjid will we're going to be have a massive zoom one of these like 5 hour meetings with with up to 500 people uh where we're going to start from before maghrib until deep into the night with multiple hosts uh leading it and so at least people could hear the adhan they can uh you know hear the adhan through the masjid they can you know, break their fast, they'll know that, and they'll see people there too, right? They'll see people, uh, you know, with their screens open. So at least there's some virtual feeling there, if not full. But that's going to be what uh, we do through MBIC. Yeah, and, and I think there these sort of, ter- that's even a tertiary effect. I mean, uh, another thing that, that I, I want to get into is 
right now we're still not because uh, Mufti and I were talking about like for example schools and Sunday schools and 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 kids going to school how are they going to learn where are they going to learn because you know we're saying that this could get there's a lot of people saying that this could get wrapped up by May I actually got a meeting invite at work that there's going to be an in-person meeting in May like May 15th uh for you know uh, our department and it's it's still very surprising to me as to how a lot of people are still not attuned to the fact that this is not going to be over in two to three weeks. Yeah. This, they, is, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is not something that's going to be wrapping up by May. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, mean, I, 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 I appreciate optimism, but like false optimism is, is just not healthy. Yeah. Uh, and I think we as a Muslim community also need to start thinking about what's going to happen if we're in this situation for longer, I haven't gotten into some of the economic impacts, but you know, if we do see certain things like huge economic turmoil and depression, what is that going to do to our spiritual state when we still can't go to the masjid? When we still don't have these things in Ramadan to comfort us. Well, this is what you're, the summary of what you're saying is that our Islam and Iman will be deprived from the foundation of suhbah. Right, because our path is sohbah, right? Our Islam is by sohbah, and our our growth is by sohbah. Our support is by sohbah, and I'll tell you, I mean, you know, just showing up at the masjid for Salat al-Isha, a number, you know, that by itself, it's uplifting when you see fifty other people showing up, right? You know, it confirms what you believe. So we ultimately now have to this take this as an as a chance to strengthen our ourselves by other sources, not just suhbah. Because if you flow for years and years and years just on suhbah, as good as that is, it's not enough, right? You need to have other foundations for your iman. And one of them has to be your own personal conviction, right? Yeah. So suhbah, of course, we would never deprive it. But if the situation has deprived us of it, then at that point, you know, we should take advantage of that and let our let us build our iman without that sahba and see, you know, we might fall flat on our face for uh, two months, right? For two months, you might not do a thing, but you'll get out of the funk, right? So until now, when you come back to the sahba, you're going to lean on it, but not in the same dependence, when with the same dependency. And I, and I if you want to look at it, imagine a team or a company, or a staff, or, or, or whatever, they uh, lose their second best player, or their top player. Everyone else has to get better. So they'll stink for the first month, right? But everyone else will eventually get better, because you have no choice. You either die, or you get better. And then when that player comes back, all of a sudden now the dynamics shifted. It's like, wow, we know that we could do it without you, but now with you, we're a lot better. So that's basically the way I would look at it. I think we need to be we need to be sympathetic towards people, but we also need to tell people not to underestimate their own abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that, listen, you know, over here schools are closed. They've mm -hmm. been closed for, you know, I think a week, or two weeks now. Mm. You know, and my my daughter still does her English. She she has a schedule. She wakes up in the morning. She does her PE. She has her, you know, she does English, she does math, she has, she has lunchtime, then she does some uh, other physical activities. Uh, 
and because we take school seriously, right? We take school education seriously. If we take the deen seriously, we're going to be doing the same thing. You know, if our kids aren't going to the maktab or the masjid to recite Quran, we're going to find some way to ensure that at the household he's he's reciting the Quran and keeping up with his. You know, we'll put on a recording on YouTube or whatever of some qari that he follows. You know, and these things have been going viral, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, people on you know uh, YouTube or Zoom or Facebook doing physical exercises for children, and like they have a million followers. People are following them. So we need, we just need a little bit of himma on our own part. And we need to recognize that, you know, for a long time, we've been neglecting the home. For a long, long time, we've been outsourcing the deen of our kids and our own deen to, you know, to the masajid and to the makatib, and there's been nothing at home. It's a great and point. now it's sort of hitting us that, hey, maybe we should have had more religious activity at the home uh, because that's also sort of a pillar uh, to, to sustain iman in our community. That's great. Uh, and so, yeah, it's going to be tough, but, you know, we have to step up. We have to step up to the game. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Solid point. Nazm Mossad, you got anything? Yeah, I mean, I think the the virus has really forced us to introspect because uh, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in America, you know, there's almost no time to breathe, especially if you're a nine to five worker. I mean, mm-hmm. you just it's like one day and then the next day and then the next day and then you sleep in on the weekends and there's really no time to just like sit down and I guess do introspection or like actually chill in the actual meaning of the word chill, right? Like by yourself doing something that benefits you. And I don't know this is, uh, it, there couldn't be a better time to do that uh, than, I, you know, when you're in I, quarantine. I think Americans suffer from a problem and this is the problem of being number one and trying to maintain your position as number one is that we don't even know how to relax. Americans, either it's either working so hard or partying so hard, it's ridiculous. There's no like sense of relaxation. In Europe, you go out there and, and, and a standard job is like six weeks vacation, eight weeks vacation, right? Uh, it's crazy. They know how to relax because they know they're not number one. That's why. And, like, and, and even how they define number one is different, right? In, in America. Well, they redefined the, it because they lost. That's why. Right. So in America, it's defined as productivity and, you know, output and and in, in very material terms. But but that doesn't necessarily equate uh, on on the same level, like on a spiritual plane of like, hey, somebody could be could, could be really poor um, and spiritually be far ahead of somebody who has a lot of material success and is, you know, um, you know, very active in other regards. So, well, well, let me give you uh, uh, the, the the reality is that it's the U- the U.S. has is number one in the sense that its dollar, right? Uh, its dollar is the source of everything, right? So that's where you're number one. You're not colonizing anyone, but your currency is the peg for everyone else. For now, for now. So you have to keep it up. That's what number one means. So in Eng- England used to be number one because what? It had more colonies than anyone else, right? Okay, so we shifted to a different scoreboard where the currency that we have and the fact that we can afford taxes that can afford allow us to have military bases everywhere, that's the meaning of number one. And it's uh, buttressed or supported by a big economy and a lot of people working and buying stuff, okay? And, and stuff being brought from us. So that's what it means to be number one. And everyone who is number one in that respect, whether it was the Ottomans and there were the Austrians or the British or the Americans, whoever it is, the meaning of number one is who is dominating the world, who's the biggest player in the world. 
only when you lose that, when it's taken from you by force. No one gives it up. When it's taken from you by force, you then say, well, what does it really mean to be number one? Yeah, you're only saying that because you lost, right? Yeah, it's true. Right? So Americans will continue to overwork themselves until they're forcibly, you know, and again, this is not something I'm rooting for, right? They're forced, we, we benefit from being this uh, strong, uh, uh, one of the strongest economies. But when it's forcibly taken from them, probably by China, maybe, right? Uh, then oh, you'll start seeing these European language of let's enjoy life, you know, let's enjoy food, let's take six weeks off, right? The Italians have this, the French have this, the Europeans have this. So enjoy life has been their new happiness since being number one has been taken away from them by the Americans since <laughs> World War II, right? So that's, that's my uh, position on things. <laughs> Nazmo, go ahead. Uh, I, I wanted to stress that a lot of us have it uh, nice that we get to sit home and uh, have meals and enjoy the, enjoy the quarantine. But most of the people, the majority of the people that will be affected by Corona are those people that are still going to work, right? They have to go to work for those essential facilities to keep working, like electricity, internet. Um, I mean, just imagine in India, right? Like a majority of the population, they, they can't stay locked inside. I mean, I just saw a video today about like millions of people migrating back to the countryside uh, because they don't have any place to live in, in the city. Right. So they can't go like two days without working. They're just going to starve. So, if, you know, for us, I think when Allah gives you a, a chance to do some introspection, you know, take it because it's, it's pretty bad for other people. It's going to be pretty bad. Uh, Sheikh and, Salman, you had something. Go ahead, I mean, these, like uh, today, I, I got a message from, uh, from a friend uh, that, you know, we have, we have over here National Zakat Foundation, right? And their zakat applications have uh, gone up by almost 50-60% over the past like week, two weeks. And so, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things, going back to our point about how we cultivate ourselves spiritually during this time and keep our iman afloat, is that we shouldn't have like a very restrictive view of what it means to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what I mean by that is, you know, right now, our massage, they're handing out like food packs and whatever. They're, they're running rounds to, you know, help poor Muslims or, you know, uh, uh, general people in the community. You know, volunteering that. The NHS has, has had a massive drive for volunteers, for deliveries, for checking up on your neighbors. Uh, that's also a form of getting connected to the to the wider community. Um, you know, we've had a maktab drive over here where we're raising funds for Maketib to have, for them to buy computers and technology. So they can continue teaching online, even if kids can't come. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways we can still contribute and, and still feel connected to the community and still feel like we are, you know, because these, these are things that do uh, impact your, 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 your iman, you know, and, and they're things that keep you anchored to the faith. Uh, and so we need to direct people, you know, that if you can't go to the masjid to pray in a congregation, then, you know, there are, first of all, you should try, try to pray Jama'ah at home with your family or your wife or whatever. But there are other means also that you can take to feel that, to fill that spiritual void uh, that you might be, that you might be feeling. And it's going to be tough times. And so people, people, like I said, have to sort of, um, they, they, they have to engage in things that they probably never had to before and step up.
And, and to be honest with you, the virtual sohba, there's a lot of virtual sohba going on, right? Yeah. I don't think it's that bad, is it? Right? No. Isn't that, Most isn't it? It's, good I anyway. don't think it's that bad. I mean, I, I see my kids reciting Quran. They go to Quran Explorer. The teacher's there on the screen. They're reciting. They're memorizing, right? They're seeing their friends. Uh, it's remu- removing, uh, you know, it's removing... Uh, commute times from from our life it's removing gas prices from our life it's removing all the annoying things that we have we had to do in the past is it really the virtual stuff so here's a a couple of things i'm going to say yeah i think the virtual stuff is not that bad i think there's there's benefit in a lot of these things but one thing i want to get to before i know saw that's leave it's almost maghrib as well um is it probably has to pray us I still have to pray also, actually. I'm not of... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I keep making that joke, but it's Dhuhr that's the issue because you guys are longer Dhuhr, right? <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah, um, I'm not going to get into the thick of that. <laughs> 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 but um, look, uh, so Politico had a, a good article um, yesterday in which it laid out three different scenarios that could present itself for America. And I actually disagree a little bit with these scenarios because I think uh, there's, there's three scenarios they laid out. One is the bad scenario. The second is the very bad scenario. And the third is the absolute worst apocalyptic type scenario. In my opinion, this bad scenario that I'm going to outline is impossible and we have missed that ship, right? Uh, Economically, we're going to hit either the very bad scenario or the worst scenario. And the, it, the, I'd like to bring this up not just to be doom and gloom, because I absolutely do not believe in false optimism. We yeah. have to be realistic in the things that might come to us and how do we prepare now for them before we start getting into it and we're like oh my god you know it's not just about working from home you know it's you know i have all these other problems now right so here i'd, I'd like to outline them uh and because i, I, th- I think it, they're presented decently well in, in, a, in a summary here so because i think the united states and i can't speak for uk and other countries but the united states is uniquely positioned in my opinion to receive this pandemic far, far, far worse than any other country. Because we, it's not just our healthcare system, it's our financial system, it's our infrastructure, it's so many other things that we have interconnected in such a way. We've shipped manufacturing to other countries. We've uh, done so many things in this country in which we have absolutely no resiliency at all in so many systems, right? We have just-in-time shipping. We have, for example, they even maximize the efficiency of hospitals so that they know how many exact hospital beds you would need in surge capacity, right? We know this. So I'd like to outline these three scenarios and because it's, I'd like to be uh, real in, 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 in what's going to potentially come to us in the United States. The bad scenario. Uh, This would require the U.S. to start bending the infection curve sometime in April. People would return to work around May or June, and the federal government's rescue programs and the stimuluses that they're going to provide uh, would help. And new filings for unemployment would start to decline, and the U.S. reports jobless claims on Thursday. And um, under this 
bad scenario, economic growth would drop only five or 10% in the second quarter and then start to rebound in the third and fourth quarter as pent up demand is unleashed and people still have jobs. The, uh, and so they're saying that the likelihood of this scenario is 25%. I mean, I'm, I'm not a statistician here, but I think that's far too high. I would say that the likelihood of this scenario is 0%. This is not happening. I agree. This is not happening. Not happening. Okay. Uh, the very bad scenario. Medical professionals say it will take longer than one month to bend the curve as new hotspots emerge from New Orleans to Detroit and Los Angeles. I think we already know this. This would extend into lockdowns into the summer. Uh, then the initial infusion of cash from the federal government would not be able to keep up. Jobless claims would continue to rise and the unemployment rate would quickly hit double digits. State budgets would also start cratering and consumer confidence would plunge, lending to a sharp pullback in spending. And some economists fear the number is further, far further to fall. Washington would have to intervene once again and economic growth would drop even more sharply in the second quarter and stay down the rest of the year. They're saying the likelihood of that is 65%. I'm still around 50% for that. This is a toss of a coin. Okay. Uh, and the worst scenario is this would involve multiple reoccurring outbreaks in the United States in the way in, in such that we're not able to, let's say we open up a lockdown in two months. That would lead to more resurgence and more outbreaks similar to mm. what's happening in Korea and, and other countries. Premature locked, premature opening up. Correct. Premature opening up. And this could require a total quarantine of the entire nation, perhaps for months. For months. This could destroy economic growths and lead to a depression in which the stock market collapses. Entire industries go bankrupt and joblessness easily tops the Great Depression high of 24.9%. And this scenario could also entail mass public unrest that requires a military response. And I think that the odds of that scenario they're saying is 10%. I think that's, that's pretty, it's, it's not 10%. There's, it's a very strong likelihood that that could happen. And, and I actually have an even worse scenario than that. Okay. The, the even worse scenario than that is the amount of stimulus and money that's being pumped into the economy could lead to a strong inflation of the U.S. dollar which leads to a collapse of the U.S. dollar and the collapse of the petrodollar itself, which could lead to, you know, people who are rich today would wake up poor tomorrow, yeah. right? Absolute chaos. I mean, I think that scenario is low, mm -hmm. but can it happen? Absolutely. I'm not throwing anything out here. And I think as a Muslim community, it's important to, to look at this from a very realistic perspective as to how we're going to handle this as a community, as individuals, how to protect our Iman in, in situations that are going to become tough more, more than likely. Like for example, my entire family that just came from India, they're all laid off. My wife just got laid off this morning. Um, uh, it, the likelihood of these things, and, and my wife works for a large company, right? There's large works for a large corporation. All contractors were just let go. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, so, we, lost, like, we lost like half our team. So, I mean, this is a large corporation, right? So yeah. this is not some small time company that's just going belly up. And to think that, oh, you know, when this virus is wrapped up in two months, everybody will just go back. No, they're not. They have real contracts that are in place that get broken. There's leases that need to be paid, mortgages that need to be paid. Uh, when you have 
people not paying their mortgages, banks no longer get their money back, right? That's how you get how that's how you get bubbles that collapse, and that's how you get industries to collapse. Uh, so all of these secondary, tertiary events that occur because of one thing happening, I don't think people are are placing importance on these things, right? So, and I know a lot of Muslims were talking about, you know, how are we going to have a remote Ramadan? I think that's great. You know, mashallah, I think we should continue to discuss how we can have a remote Ramadan. <laughs> yeah. But we're about to have some really bad problems yeah. economically for Muslims and everybody else in this country. We should also be prepping on what are we going to do if we can't go to work? Yep. Are you going to be fasting if you don't have any food? Right? What happens if you have to go to a bread line? Are, you gonna, are there going to be halal bread lines? I mean, this sounds like a very doom and gloom. No, you, you have to prepare all these things. But you, it's, it's important to prepare and think about these things. I mean, and I was saying this a month ago that, you know, Muslims need to start preparing funerals and, and how to have janazas. And I think a lot of Muslim communities, I think, Sheikh Salman, you worked on something for, for janazas for the UK, right? I think uh, and they, they, they were caught blindsided. As to, you know, oh, snap, we now have to do a janaza for a person who's died of COVID and we can't enter the hospital. We can't enter the graveyard without, you know, uh, personal protective equipment and all the personal protective equipment is sold out. And Muslim mm-hmm. communities were caught blindsided by this entire thing. And I don't want Muslim communities and Muslims in general to be caught blindsided by this this economic impact that's going to hit them perhaps far worse than this virus. Uh, and let me say something too. What you, what you brought up was brilliant, bringing up all these points and these possibilities. And by the way, I mean, political, these are just human beings that are watching. Who right. have, they're just like us. So you, you, your, your own opinion is as valid as theirs, right? Um, but the issue, the idea of optimism uh, is a mindset, but preparedness is action, okay? Yeah. And preparedness, it's I've actually taken some classes in preparedness from uh, retired uh, uh, military guys. And one of their principles that nothing is absurd in a preparedness discussion. All right. When you say something, when we're entering and saying we're in a preparedness discussion, we're not saying what's a fact and what's a fiction. We're not analyzing the situation. We're having a preparedness discussion. Now, one of the key points he said is that nothing is absurd. Don't say anything. Oh, forget this. No, because a, a solid preparedness actually takes into account every possible thing that could fathomably happen. Like, you know, Sheikh Salman and Nazmul, they know Haymar Kalam, right? What's <laughs> jet is aqlam, right? <laughs> anything that is jet is aqlam, that's rationally possible. We must assess it and have a playbook for it, have to have a binder for it. Like in the NFL, you go in week one, week two, week three, right? Uh, all these binders, uh, Miami Dolphins, the binder for the Jets, the binder for the Patriots. Likewise, we have a binder for everything. And let me tell you something that uh, I, I can't remember if I told you guys this before, that my feeling was that um, if you look at the President uh, that Trump's career, he, he built the Trump Tower. He was just on top of the world. Trump Tower was like the thing of the 80s or whatever, whenever it was built. Then he built up all of Atlantic City and he bought up uh, Atlantic City and then he bought teams and yachts and planes and an airline, right? And then what happened? Very quickly, he got so rodeo, he got so um, uh, cavalier about everything that he made one massive mistake. 
which was uh, the Taj Mahal, which put him within two months. When that thing opened up, within two months, it went bankrupt. And he was $900 million in debt. $900 million in debt. Okay. In that small of a, of a period of time. And we're talking about what, like 89 or 90 or something like that. Okay. So his cat, his, his rapid rise, and then he gets cavalier and he got cavalier about the coronavirus. He thought it was a joke, right? He thought it was a hoax, a joke, and look what happened. And if he had been serious about it, okay, this is speaking from a preparedness perspective, not from a qadr of Allah perspective. If he had been taking it seriously, he would have, um, you know, he would have uh, uh, maybe stopped it earlier or decreased it. But we're sort of mimicking where you follow the leader, right? In his ups and his downs. And he's taken us on one of these downs. And when it comes to this, I think that you got to lo- really look at two simple things. And they're, the guidance of this comes from Surah Quraysh. And in Surah Quraysh, Allah tells us two things that even rationally people can get, but now they're confirmed in Revelation. Protection and food. You have to eat. That's number one. And you have to be protected in your roof. Okay. So those are the two things that we should really, if you really want to get down to it, what is stability? What is safety? It's two very simple things. And that is, do we have food? So what are the supply lines of food? Did you know that I read in my article the other day, actually, my wife read me an article the other day. She said, look at this fascinating piece of information. Whenever there's a crisis, the supply of chickens go plummets because everyone buys chickens. Because people are like, I don't want to buy eggs, right? So they buy up chickens and they said, we need to have a farm to eat from, right? So the, so, so the demand for chicken rises whenever there's a crisis or a calamity. So we have to actually start thinking of very, very basic, 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 basic things like food and security. Because all the talk that you're talking, really, what is it going to come down to? Can you Food, can, food and security, right? Food and security. Mm-hmm. And these two things cannot happen by ourselves. You can never do it by yourself, right? You have to have a tribe. Masajid communities must form tribes. They must convert real fast into makeshift tribes. That means you all have, you know, uh, come, know when to come together, how to come together, how to protect. Like, I mean, I taught my son. I taught my son, like, secure, how to do a reconnaissance of the area, right? <laughs> that you're going to take a baseball bat and you're going to go to the back of the house. You got to make sure you got the back door. I got the front door. You got the back door. We know there's no entrance from the side, right? We got one of the, you know, someone watch the side. Um, I got a security system with cameras now. See down the street because you need to know. So I'm taking security 1,000% serious. Not even a thing. Buy baseball bats. Buy axes. I'm not going to talk about guns. There's a, <laughs> there's a reason. For, I have a personal and certain reasons I'm not going to talk about guns. But I'm going to talk about bats, axes, in your bedroom, security cameras. And how are you going to eat? What is your supply line? How, how long does it take for you to walk, right, to the nearest supermarket? Yeah. Do you have a goat? 
can, can, I, can I just interject and say that we're, we're the only podcast that has predicted the end of the world? I'm telling you, whether or not, I, I'm telling you, my honestly, one of my life goals, okay? One of, one of my life goals, I have a couple life goals, right? I'm not even being silly. One of my life goals, my first life goal is to be able to produce milk, eggs, we got a problem with water, right? Because we don't have any wells in the area, right? But milk and eggs, okay? I want to be able to produce those for my family. That's number one. And I want to have a completely secured, like, a, you know, the gangsters? You, I, I tell you what we're going to end up with. You know, in those, in those movies, they show in, uh, uh, they, they give you these movies from like Haiti or from some country, and you have these plastic lawn chairs, with a bunch of guys with rifles and, and bullets, <laughs> bullets across his vest, right? I'm telling you, we will end up like this, right? But uh, a protection from the front and the back of the house. But that's one, that, ap- that, that preparedness to the point that if government fails, we're prepared. We got food and we got uh, security. That's number one. Uh, the second one is, you know, the something else, some, the complete opposite, right? Based on my love of New York, you know, uh, that's the exact something opposite in New York City. But that's forget that one. But the one of my life goals is to have this idea of absolute security in the sense uh, as as rudimentary and fundamental human security that I don't rely on the police. I don't rely upon uh, supply chains. Nothing. Sheikh Salman definitely thinks he's happy that he doesn't live in the United States right now. <laughs> uh, they are lucky, believe it or not. They're, for example, I used to go to Cricklewood Mosque. Cricklewood, you've been to Cricklewood, Sheikh Salman? Uh, a few, yeah, yeah, I have. Okay, yeah. so a lot of places in England are like this, the Muslim areas. Masjid at the end of the cul-de-sac, and on the right and left of the cul-de-sac are homes, 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 homes. You can't rob one of these homes. You'll make too much noise. You'll wake up the whole neighborhood, right? Uh, there's literally inches between two homes, yeah. right? Inches, literally. Uh, so you can't even run between these two homes. There's, that's how little space there is between. So they are fortified. They're safe. And they could have community block watches where a couple guys take the cricket bats and walk up and down, <laughs> right? And they do this in the nighttime and they sleep during the day, right? Shifts, eight-hour shifts. I mean, alhamdulillah, right now, we're, l- luckily, we're not in, in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> just like, I was happy with my remote Ramadan, you guys. <laughs> I, do think, I, I, I do think that right now, people, individuals need to identify their sphere of influence. Right? And we don't need to burden people with, um, you know, like the people, like right now in, in East London, you know, there are several uh, burial, Muslim burial parlors that have closed down. You know, because they 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 can't deal with the demand. So now, you know, I mean, it's a big issue for us. Like, you know, that you can't bury your dead. You don't have you don't have storage to you know store the deceased bodies. You don't have space in your uh, uh, you know cemeteries, your Muslim cemeteries. You know, see, these are major issues. That's a and big so, issue. Yeah, and so these, you know, the the, the funeral parlors, um, they should have taken on these preparedness techniques that Dr. Shadi is saying. You know, coordinate with each other, rent out extra storage space. If they need funding from the community, do that. Get some extra volunteers, train them in PPE. But we sort of, I think, 
first of all, it did come up. It did. It this thing did come out of the blue in 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 a sense that, you know, three weeks ago, we knew there was something wrong, but we didn't anticipate that it would escalate so quickly. You know, because the government was sort of holding back and, you know, uh, saying that you know it's not a big deal and and, and whatnot. But now it has escalated, and now we need to prepare, like Dr. Shadi says, for a potential future escalation because the peak hasn't come yet, right? The peak is about to come, uh, according yeah. to most analysts. But we do need to tell individuals that, you know, if you have a sphere of influence, whether it's the janeza, whether it's the mosque, whether it's your, uh, you know, a, 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 as a person in the home, whether it's as the director of the National Zakat Foundation, whatever it is, just be prepared in your sphere of influence to do whatever you can to assist the community. And you're not going to be able to, uh, you're not going to be able to control the, the the supply chain of food, right? So, yeah, worry about it to some extent, but make sure that whatever your sphere of influence is, you're doing what you need to do effectively over there. Yeah. You know? Because if everyone's doing their bit, then hopefully, you know, if, if the zakat people who are disseminating zakat and collecting it are doing their bit, you know, they're going to be helping the Muslim community out a lot by disseminating these funds and allowing people to you know, purchase food or whatever it might be. I um, think, and let, speaking of zakah, speaking of poverty, uh, let me tell you that where violence comes into play here. Very good people. I'll tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be a very good man who cannot withstand seeing his kids and his wife hungry. That's the guy who's going to rob people, right? And he's going to be a very good man. He just can't withstand seeing his family go hungry. Those are the people who end up committing crimes. It's not gangsters that are coming around our neighborhoods. It's local guys, plumbers. It's local electricians. It's local uh, builders. Are, is anyone building homes right now? No one's building homes, right? It's builders. It's these people. It's uh, how about the uh, uh, those who are, what's the politically correct word for illegal immigrants, okay? Undocumented people, these undocumented people who work cash every day, they have no work, right? It's these people who are out of a sense of decency will say to themselves, hey, you guys have, we don't. I'm stealing from you, right? And in his logic, that makes sense. In a lot of our logic, it would make sense too. Those are the people who will reach into other people's pockets. And do you blame them? I don't blame them and I don't want to be their victim either. Absolutely. I don't, I totally don't blame them. And I expect them to come around because we all live, you know, in proximities to one another and they're going to come to different areas and they're gonna, this is going to happen. I really believe it's going to happen. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, protecting yourself and your family is your first priority in America. Your, our homes are so far apart. You're all on your own almost. And so that's really something that uh, that's where it would stem from. Very decent people who haven't had a paycheck in three weeks. Are you serious? Three weeks, these people haven't had a paycheck. All right. Where is he going to eat from? Explain to me. Does he have a church to give him money, a food? Does he have a big family to give him food? Explain to me where is he going to get food from, right? SubhanAllah. And I mean, that's why you need to, listen, people need to watch out for each other. Yeah. You know, like me and, me and my wife have made it a point that, you know, we, we live in a cul-de-sac, you know, uh, and we check up on the neighbors all the time. You know, do you need anything from the, from the, from, from the store? You know, how yeah. are you guys doing? You know, what's going on? Do you need help with anything? 
because that goes a long way. That goes a long way to offset, you know, just, just, just that feeling that people have that, okay, there's someone here watching out for me goes a long way to offset that, that, uh, that impulse to yeah. go down that rabbit. Hole. He's, that, yeah, yeah. They're going to skip your house. Yeah. When they need to get food, they're going like, to no, skip Salman's house. He always asks about us. Right. Or they might just ask, <laughs> they might be like, or, or they might just say, yo, Salman, I'm having a trip. Uh, oh yeah, that's true too. He might, instead of, you know, breaking in and stealing, he'd ask you, right. That's yeah. the benefits of these things. That's the benefit of being out there. I think one dangerous thing that has happened, which I, I haven't heard any commentary or seen any commentary on this, is I think the media actually pulled the trigger a little bit too early on this. Right? What do you mean uh, pulled the trigger? Uh, so I think in both respects. They pulled it too late, and then now they're pulling it too early. I think they pulled it too late in, in recognizing that this crisis was coming. Right. And, and they didn't alert people. I mean, they knew. I mean, the, the World Health Organization knew. So many other people knew and they didn't alert people. And then the secondary thing that happened is now they've drummed up so much hysteria that the peak is coming in next week, next week, that now people are going to next week, they're going to be in shock when it's not over next week. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this, the, the whole narrative now is this is going to be wrapped up in two weeks. People are going to be absolutely shocked when it's not wrapped up in two weeks. I right. I myself, I'm one of them. I'm one of them who's like, I can't believe this is extending. I never thought this would extend. Right. So I think we have to wrap it up. I think it's, it's going to be Maghrib so we can continue this, inshallah, next week. Yeah, this was good. And I think we ended up on the same topic as last week, which is buy baseball bats. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that continues to be the seclusion. And to me, I'm telling you, it will continue to be the main point until we really have it down because we don't have it down, right? Absolutely. Moin, if a gang shows up at your house, you've got nothing, man. You can't have nothing protecting your wife. Right? Absolutely. If a gang, if, if three guys knock on your door, right, what do you got? Nothing. You got, be done for. You'd be done for. I can't stand, <laughs> I, I can't stand for this. Can you, can you take three guys with a baseball bat? I mean, well, it's not That's why we need, we need a gang, number one. We need other things, number two. Mm-hmm. Right? I can't stand for this. We can't go on living with that. And I can't go on living with that in the back of my mind. Right, that if a guy, a couple dudes roll up in a truck, game's over. That's that was it, right? All this yeah. education and the took that, that's it, right? PhD <laughs> is a scam. <laughs> just, just so Sheikh Salman isn't freaked out by our discussion, um, I think it's a part of the American mindset to always be self sufficient. It comes yeah. from the frontier, you know, mentality. So, I mean, what Dr. Shadi's talking about, it's very much like an American psychology sort of stereotypical thing mm-hmm. where. Uh, you, <laughs> you guys do know I was born and raised in New York, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> but, so, but yeah, but yeah. All right, inshallah, I think we can we can wrap this up. Jazakallah khairan, everyone. Welcome. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this, inshallah. See what happens. Uh, right. Yeah, you know, whatever the latest news is, I guess we'll come back next week and see what the latest is. Inshallah. Uh, I, it's, it's next week. It's going to be baseball bats. <laughs> no next week is going to be buy some gold yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right Sheikh Salman Jazakumullah khairan Sheikh Salman thank, thank you so much for coming man thank you alhamdulillah nice right. seeing you likewise good to see you too all right assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh subhanakallahum wa bihamdik wa bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asif inna al-insana lafi khusr illa al-ladhina amanu wa amilu al-salihat
وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر اللهم صل على سيدنا ومولانا محمد الفاتح لما أغلق والخاتم لما سبق ناصر الحق بالحق والهادي إلى صراطك المستقيم وعلى آله حق قدره ومقداره العظيم